Hello, welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name is Toby, and today I'm joined by two guests from the world of scientific publishing, specifically open access publishing. They are Dr. Frederick Fenter, who is the chief executive editor for the Frontiers portfolio of research journals, uh, with a storied career in academic publishing and a research background in atmospheric chemistry, and Stefan Kuster, a political scientist by training who has served as Secretary General of the research network Science Europe and advised the European Commission on Science Policy and is now Head of Institutional Affairs at the very same frontiers. So Fred and Stefan, welcome both of you to the podcast. Thanks in advance for your time. Hello. Thanks, Toby. Great to be here. So I know both of you are active in science policy circles and, uh, and ambassadors on the brave new publishing frontier pun intended, I suppose, of, of open science. And I've no doubt that we could have a fascinating conversation on that topic uh, someday, but today is not that day. Today, instead, I have in front of me a report that you published, that, that Frontiers published, uh, at the end of 2020 called The Academic Response to COVID-19, uh, which I think has some very interesting stuff in it, not least about science advice and science for policy. So, so to get the ball rolling, perhaps I could uh, invite you to say a few words about this report and why it exists. Yeah. When the COVID pandemic hit uh, last springtime, um, we realized that in terms of interacting with our editorial boards, the context changed very, very quickly. Instead of having in-person editorial summit meetings, we began to organize these uh, large uh, thousands of, of editorial members coming together around these virtual events. And we really felt a very strong sense of community. We felt a sense that people, it was important for them to, to join in on these discussions and it was quite an event to experience. It came to us that um, there was not a lot of information out there about how scientists were actually living, you know, how they, what they were experiencing, what they were going through in this COVID crisis. And so we decided to just do a, a survey, you know, to ask them a couple of pointed questions about how they were working, whether they were able to maintain continuity, uh, how they felt that their own voice was being listened to, uh, et cetera. And so this was actually one of the points, one of the um, one of the actions that we took in, in terms of trying to um, uh, understand how scientists were were experiencing this uh, pandemic. And I have to just point out that Frontiers has about 200,000 uh, scientists that belong to its various editorial boards across the 100 journals or so that we publish. And so we're actually quite lucky uh, to have this large international uh, group of scientists to tap into to to uh, to to ask the, the, these types of questions. Yeah, I, thinking back to the time when we were designing the, the survey, we were very aware that people in this uh, special circumstances that we had, especially at the beginning of the pandemic in March, where the disruption was major and no one really knew where things were going, we were conscious that we, we couldn't you know, ask people to uh, reply to a survey with a thousand questions or, or like uh, a huge uh, burden. So we really tried to ask a, a, a small number of questions that would give us um, interesting insights. And um, pretty quickly, we realized that um, funding is something that researchers are very often very aware of, if not concerned about. So this would be interesting to see in the context of this um, COVID pandemic. And in particular, policy advice or the scientific advice to policymakers was something that from basically from one day to the next appeared on the front pages of newspapers. So we thought we'd ask this community how they perceived the advice that policymakers were receiving and the use they were making of that. That's why these two aspects uh, feature prominently in the survey as well. 
Uh, and I see this report was published in October 2020, but when was the actual research done? When were the questions asked? Well, the survey was conducted uh, with Qualtrics in May and June uh, 2020. And uh, so there was a total of 25,300 respondents from 152 countries and um, and almost 18,000 people completed the entire survey. So, um, And the answers to the survey were completely anonymous. Gotcha. I mean, this is a big piece of work, right? That's a big sample size. Uh, and although you say you wanted to keep it fairly light on the questions, there's still a good amount of detail in there. And you had a good response rate. So, so congratulations on that. So I think it's it's pretty hard to think of anyone whose lives haven't been affected by the pandemic. It's been a, a universal impact, I think. But as you say, this is an interesting group of people to study, to find out specifically, I guess, both how scientists were affected directly, but also what they thought of the whole thing and how science was being used and so on. So broadly on those two areas, what were the headlines? What did you discover? Well, I think um, one of the important results uh, that came out was that most people were able to continue with their work uh, more or less with a, a certain degree of continuity. So they weren't they weren't overly disrupted. They felt that they were able to continue their work uh, adequately. And uh, you know, as a scientific publisher, we absolutely saw that because one of the sub questions is what which type of uh, uh, work were you doing uh, in this period. And a lot of it had to do with writing up past work and submitting new publications. And we actually did see quite a few publications come through, an increase in publications in general across the program during this, this first sort of confinement period, the first wave of the epidemic. So, yeah, so one, one is that um, the day-to-day -day work had not been significantly affected. Well, I think coupled to that, so one thing is the resilience that you mentioned. The other thing that struck me um, is the, the willingness um, expressed by these communities to chip in. You know, um, uh, one of the questions was whether they were, um, you know, ready to reappropriate their labs or their infrastructure to do research on and that would serve uh, solving the COVID uh, situation. And the answer overwhelmingly was yes. And also the willingness to participate in task forces, in providing advice to, to policymakers, and in just getting involved, reading the survey and even looking at the raw data gave us a sense of this is a community that wants to be engaged. Yeah. And so, you know, at Frontiers, what we see is that this uh, desire to step in and make a contribution actually happened across all subject areas. And I think that's also an interesting point to, to point out. Everybody from mechanical engineers to people studying urban mobility to people who are working on the mental health aspects of COVID, they all came and organized uh, editorial projects to try to gain insights into these aspects of the of, of the pandemic. These scientists, our, our editors, felt uh, this a call to contribute where they could in order to to make to make their contribution. Yeah, that is interesting. I mean, describe it as a, a sense of community, um, but not just in a kind of opportunistic way. Like you know, suddenly I can join these thousand strong virtual meetings and I feel like I'm part of something big. Or even <laughs> suddenly I can't go into the lab, but that means I've got time to finish that paper I've been working on for ages. You know, so not not only like an opportunity in that way, but also an opportunity for the community to pull together and each person to find a way to contribute to this big project that crosses all disciplines and impacts on the, the whole world. So, I mean, I know, I admit these are scientists, so these are not people perhaps whose livelihoods have been shredded by the pandemic, by and large, one would hope. But still, that kind of feedback is a real contrast from some of the tales of doom and gloom that we might have expected to hear in 2020. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think this this is uh, 
the impression we got is we were expecting, as you say, doom and gloom or 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 uh, at least some negative, you know, pessimistic views here. And and the, the first impression we got is the opposite of that. Is a very positive outlook, and uh, um, as I said, a willingness to be engaged in, in, in solving a problem. Now, if you look more in detail at the data, there are um, clearly also um, differences here, um, regional differences. Um, if you look at countries, uh, for example, in the global south, where um, you know working from home is not necessarily as common or as easily uh, done as uh, in in the global north or in some countries, uh, you see a difference. You see more people report disruption in, in the countries where you cannot just from one day to the next decide to work from home. Yeah, there's two dimensions, I suppose. So there's the disruption to people's working lives, personal lives, home circumstances, which is different all over the world and different between different people, but also not just unique to scientists. Mm. And then there's the, the second dimension, which is more specific to the science community about the special contribution that they feel they can make or, or want to be able to make to the policy response or to, to understanding the virus as scientists, um, which is perhaps what we should focus this conversation. Yeah. But before we go there, if I may, I just wanted to get a couple of contextual things out of the way um, for the benefit of listeners who might not have seen the survey. So we're talking about, as we said, uh, 25,000 respondents or so, many of whom answered all the questions or most of them. But who are these people other than, as we've been saying, scientists? Where are they from? What kind of areas do they work in? So, so we did not require people to give a full profile in terms of um, de describing themselves. So we have some, we have good indications about subject areas and uh, and, and levels of seniority. Um, we do know that, for example, that the largest number of respondents came from demographics like the U.S. and uh, and in in, in Europe. Um, but we did get responses from a total of um, 152 countries, and the the gender breakdown was more or less balanced. I think if we're going to talk about sort of like the nature of the cohort, one thing that's interesting about it is that these are members of our own uh, editorial boards, and we are an open access publisher. And so if, if, we're, if we're selecting for something which is sort of non-statistical, it's probably we're, we're working with people who have a very strong sense of the importance of um, open access, open science principles. So um, I think that's one thing that needs to be kept in mind uh, when, when, when looking at the, uh, the survey in general, in terms of the, the nature of the people who replied to the uh, questions. Other than that, we, we're very careful about who we select as uh, editors and members of our editorial boards. And and so I, what we have, I think, is a very representative cross-section of, of people working at, at re relatively high-level academic positions around the world. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think that in that sense, we have a very representative group of people across the world, even if we do have this slight uh, leaning towards people that support open science practices. There was one other detail of this that I was trying to hammer out um because this comes up frequently, as you probably know, in, in international conversations about science. Um, and I think it's relevant in understanding the perspective of respondents here. And that's whether these are scientists in the more narrow, like English language sense, meaning people who work in natural and social sciences, or whether it's also supposed to include the humanities and so on. And I got confused about that because at first I thought the answer was yes, yes, it's researchers in all disciplines. That's what the headline suggests anyway. But then when I looked at the breakdown of disciplines at the back of the report, um, I see that it actually skews extremely heavily towards medicine and biology, which add up to more than twice as much as everyone else put together. And I think humanities and social sciences all grouped together are only about 4% of total respondents. 
Yeah. So how come? Is this because your editorial boards are mostly made up of medics and biologists, or, or does it tell us something about who was interested in the survey or what? No, it's just simply a consequence of the fact that we started our publishing in, in neuroscience, we, we, and then we initially expanded in biological and uh, medical areas, and the humanities and social science programs were developed much later. Uh, so our, our, our first uh, journal was published in about 2007 in, in neuroscience, and then it's only been a few years that we've, we've, we've worked to develop the humanities and social science program. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, I think it's good to be clear on who the respondents actually are in the main. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of other stuff in here. And what's most interesting, maybe for this podcast, as I mentioned, um, is not so much the insight we get into how individual scientists have been affected by the pandemic, but also things like how they saw the role of science as a whole and, and how it's been used in their view more widely in the public debate and, and by policymakers. What kind of picture do you think emerges from these aspects of the study? So as, as Fred already mentioned when we were describing the, the cohort, these are people who have already a sort of positive view of uh, open science, right? And uh, let's say maybe the basic principle of open science is sharing your results, sharing your data. So um, uh, that is one result that at first sight may be surprising to see um, that there is a high number of respondents reporting. When we ask them, are you willing to share your data more? Uh, or share your publications more and, and publish in open access, uh, a lot of them said um, they, they don't want to change their behavior. And you can only understand that response if you know that the cohort is already biased towards open access. So not changing the behavior means not moving away from open access and not moving away from sharing the data. Um, the other thing that that might that might make sense in this context is that um, we've seen a lot of um, people making the link towards environmental problems, uh, or global warming specifically. What's what's happened in COVID is that people. It's you know, of course we have a, a a pandemic that has has struck, but it it does invite people to think um, a little bit more seriously about the consequences of of, of other um, threats. And, um, and how those threats might best be addressed, both through uh, practices in uh, scientific publishing and through policy. And I think that, that this is also one of the reasons why we, we moved to, to develop the Policy Labs project at, at Frontiers, because it was a very heightened awareness of the fact that in order to address these issues that we're confronted with, for example, the climate change, we have to do a much, much better job in terms of translating the results of scientific research in a language that can be, um, that, that, you know, that, that that's actionable from people that in, in, in a, uh, a decisional context. Yeah, we, we did ask them the question, if, if there's something you can ask of policymakers, what do you as a researcher need from policymakers most? And the, the two top answers were more investment in basic research and better ways for science to advise policy and decision making. Um, so uh, this was also very interesting that these are um, the, the top concerns uh, of, of, of this community in the context of, of COVID. I guess funding is always a concern, so this was not surprising. It was surprising, though, to see that it's investment in basic research. Um, so even in a very you know, acute situation where um, a lot of the science needed was applied science, the concern here was about more investment for basic research and thinking in the long term. So this was, this was quite telling. Right. I mean, I, yeah, just to say that another way, uh, in, in, the, in the heart of a pandemic, you would think that people would want to sort of pool the resources very, very, in a very focused way to solve the problem. Um, but the answer was basically, let's not lose the focus. Let's not overly invest in, in one subject area. And let's, let's not 
have this um, perturb the, the 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 progress that we're making in all the other fields. Um, so yeah, so I think that that's something that came across also. Mm, so we're talking about the need for basic research, not just in uh, say biomedical areas or areas that are directly relevant to to medicine or epidemiology, um, but across the board. Correct. Yeah, talking to certain people who work in the environmental area, you know, th- their initial concern was that. A lot of the progress, a lot of momentum, a lot of the awareness that they had been building for for, for a long period of time um, might have been sort of um, pushed to the side or neglected in the, in the context of the pandemic. And um, to the point even where um, there, there were various uh, proposals made to, to attach, you know, because the pandemic forces us to think about the, the function of society from, from top to bottom. And why not, while we're doing this evaluation, keep in mind the fact that we're also confronted with an important environmental risk and insist that we're putting money specifically into these research projects. But let's invite everyone to think about at the same time, as I'm solving this problem with the pandemic, what are the consequences in terms of the environmental implications of, of the work that I'm, that I'm doing? So yeah, again, as well as a challenge, also an opportunity to improve things. So, so as you mentioned, basic science funding is a priority for respondents, but then so is the opportunity for science to engage with policymakers. A lot of people said they thought science should inform policy better, that their areas have something more to contribute to policy than is currently the case. But then you also asked them a follow-up question. Okay, do you think that you yourself or your organization are able to be part of that? And in answer to that question, 4% of people said yes. So what's the gap? Do you have any insights about why there's that difference between the willingness for it to happen and the willingness to be involved? Well, the survey itself does not give us any better understanding of that, but we did discuss um, some of the findings of the survey with with experts in the field, including in the field of of scientific advice. And and, and one thing that um, came across and can be a tentative explanation for this is that um, scientific advice is not is not a, a game for the masses, if you want. Um, uh, in the end, the way it is organized in most countries is a, a small group, either a permanent commission or a, a, an ad hoc task force focused on one, one subject, will in the end be uh, advising uh, either a government, a local authority, uh, and so on. So I think on the one hand, it expresses an awareness of this, that most scientists, they want that mechanism to work well, but they not necessarily want to be part of that small group. It's a very exposed position. Um, as a scientist, you know, you expose yourself to uh, harsh uh, reaction and criticism from anyone who doesn't agree with, uh, not only with your advice, but also with the ultimate decision made by the decision makers based on your advice. And also people finding this important does not mean that they want necessarily to do it personally. I think this may be a reflection of that, of people saying we need a mechanism that works, but my role is not being in that mechanism. My role may be in the lab providing the science that that mechanism will then use to provide advice. Right. Which then brings us to the question of of those mechanisms which exist and how well they're working. And um, I think it's not that this study provides a particular insight into the the detail of science advice mechanisms, but it's interesting because it provides the perspective of essentially rank and file scientists on how well they're performing, how well the mechanisms are performing. So the question you asked here was, how well do you think your government is using science advice, basically? And respondents had a wide range of views, a range of levels of confidence in the use of evidence by their own governments. So are there any correlations or do you have any insights about what made some scientists apparently 
pretty positive and others quite negative? Uh, the, I mean, the, the correlation, if I'm uh, honest, is pretty direct. We, we asked this question in the context of the first wave. So that's, that's something worth mentioning, right? Um, so, so we're talking about um, the period between March and, and, and May. Um, but immediately, the countries where the respondents agree with the statement that uh, policymakers have taken advice into account are countries that have, at that time, were faring better in terms of containing the virus and preventing, uh, you know, high death rates or, or oversaturating the, the ICU system. So you have countries like New Zealand at the very top, Greece, um, China, despite being uh, sort of at the origin, um, very quickly contained the outbreak. Denmark, Germany all feature very highly here in that ranking. And towards the bottom of that ranking, you see countries that at that time were faring less well or, you know, pretty badly. You have Russia, UK, Brazil, uh, and the US at the, at the very bottom. So in a sense, yes, that correlation is, is there. But what, what cannot strike uh, or, or underline enough is the fact that this is not a survey of people who participate in government advice mechanisms. This is a survey of the academic community. So the overwhelming majority of the respondents were just as, uh, in the same way that we were spectators of what was going on and were not involved in providing advice. So this is a perception of what was going on, right? Um, uh, and, and it captures opinions. And it's, I think, a very natural uh, opinion that if your country was faring well at that point, and was receiving advice because, as I said earlier, the, the fact that scientific advice was being provided was in, on every front page of a newspaper. Every evening in the news, you saw scientific task forces reporting. So the fact that people saw scientific advice was being given, if your country was faring well, you assumed the, the, the advice was being followed. And if your country was not doing well, you assumed your country was not following the advice. Yeah, I mean, we have to understand the survey results at face value. Like, as you said, we're not asking science advisors if they think their advice is being taken. But still, I mean, well, firstly, as I said, I think it's an interesting data point in itself to understand what the science community thinks of how, how their work essentially is being used. Um, and secondly, I mean, you're right, these are not people who are directly involved in the process, mostly, but they're also not just, uh, let's say, uninterested passers-by. They're people who you might expect, on average, will be following the situation quite closely and maybe understand some more of the detail than non-scientists. Absolutely. So these people were probably following these sort of stories much more closely than a non-academic audience, right? So they were taking this very seriously. It was important or is still important for them that science advice is given and is used. So, yeah, um, I believe that to be the case. And I, I just kind of wonder, uh, you know, we, we've been through two or three waves of, of, of the COVID pandemic. And at this point, uh, I really wonder to what extent the, the, the debates have, have more centered on just the logistics of, for example, organizing vaccination programs. And, uh, you know, if, if you look at certain countries that have had, they, they go through waves of initially people feeling that they've done a good job. Um, you know, th this survey was conducted six months ago. And so, um, you know, it's one point in time. It would be very interesting just to, to, to recontact people and, and find out how they feel now that that's played out a little bit, whether they think that their government has been doing a good job, specifically on whether or not they've done a good job organizing a response, you know, or a good job in terms of listening to what, what the scientists have to say. So I think, um, I think that those are somehow two slightly different issues. 
This is, uh, I think, undoubtedly a softball question, but I do want to ask you about the link between open access publishing and science or policy. So I, I know open access is basically your business model at Frontiers, and I don't really want to go too far into the, the broad debate about that because I know it's a whole big issue in itself. But uh, keeping our focus a bit narrower, it does seem like you have some interesting readouts from this survey about the effects of the pandemic on the future of open access uh, um, and people's attitudes towards it. Would you like to say a few words about that? Yeah, I mean, what I would say is that uh, you talked before about opportunity, you know, and I think that what, what's happened in this uh, the pandemic context is that people's minds opened to looking at the big picture and trying to uh, step back and maybe abandon some of their, their a prioris about the way science is conducted. That is an opportunity. And this is one of the reasons why we, we started working with this, the, the Policy Labs project where we had the coronavirus hub. I think we know that this was an opportunity to show people that scientific research that is published should be openly and immediately available. And that is the only way that it is going to maximally benefit society at large. In an emergency, it's absurd that the results of scientific research are locked behind paywalls. And to the point where even the subscription-based publishers, they made the same re realization and they, they opened up all of their articles that were behind paywalls. They made them freely available because they understood that this is a situation of such importance that, that this knowledge has to be freely available without, without any impediment. Um, now, the, the idea is just simply that people should be able to very simply extrapolate to the other types of problems that we're confronted with. If you're talking about respiratory uh, illness, it affects it, tens of millions of people a year. It, it kills li literally millions of people a, a year. Why should that not be handled with the same sort of urgency as a uh, as a viral pandemic? If you look at the threats of uh, climate change, um, why is that something that should not also be regarded as something which is uh, of such importance that all of the scientific information that has been generated uh, around that not be immediately available to the scientific community so they can build upon that and, and people can start translating this to inform the public. So uh, what I'd like to think is that this COVID pandemic has helped to open people's eyes in terms of why open science uh, is the most effective way forward in terms of translating the results of scientific research into solutions for, to the challenges we face. And let me just let me just point out that funders have also come to the exact same conclusion. And there have been programs that have been set up. Um, Stefan will say a, a few words about, about the coalition of funders that have worked to try to work towards this exact outcome, because um, they also see that they're funding the science. And what they would like is that that the, the knowledge that is generated through these uh, programs is optimally reusable by the, the world. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, COVID didn't bring about the, the open science movement. The open science movement has been there for much longer and actually recently gained momentum by exactly what Fred says, the funders realizing the power and the, the role they can play here by, uh, for example, in the context of Plan S, mandating open access publication of results that were funded with public money. Um, so uh, uh, the movement was already there, the momentum was there, and I, I think COVID delivers the ultimate proof. If anyone needed another piece of proof of the relevance and the urgency of, of this, COVID has provided it. Now, on the other side of that, of course, changing the academic system and how science works 
is, is not going to happen overnight. So there's going to be a, a cultural change driven by the evidence that COVID has provided of, of the impact of open science, but that is going to take several months or, or, or years. Um, sharing your results needs to be uh, rewarded uh, as, as a behavior for, for scientists. In the context of COVID, the reward is, you know, faster, uh, faster, faster treatments, uh, the, the vaccines and so on. So the re reward is, is tangible and is there, but doing the same thing in, in climate change of course, the solutions to mitigating climate change is going to be a type of reward, but you also need rewards in terms of what it means for the careers of scientists and, and of this community that we surveyed. Um, so you need real incentives to share your, your work openly and, um, and to be rewarded for, for, the, for that type of behavior. Yeah, and I, I think I would just add that um, some, of the, some of our editors that, uh, that, that we've talked to recently pointed out that the scientific community was fully aware of the threats of a uh, coronavirus pandemic. It's it, it's a scenario that has been very, very well studied and everybody knew, everybody, certain sectors of the scientific community were quite aware of the fact that a coronavirus pandemic was, was a, a, a threat of a relatively high probability. So this, again, in parallel to that, we know that the um, that the environmental threats is also a, uh, a, a outcome of a very high probability. So we have to try to use this uh, use case to show people that, yes, scientists are, are able to identify threats and able to propose solutions, able to provide context that, that, that provide um, um, a decisional framework. And this pandemic has played out very much along the lines of, of what had been predicted by, by scientists. Now let's take the word of scientists more seriously at, when they warn us about what's going to happen in other other contexts. Yeah, that's a theme that's come up quite a lot when we've been talking about science advice in the pandemic. I remember a few months ago, we had uh, a Cambridge researcher on the podcast, uh, Clarissa Rios-Rojas, who works on existential risks to humanity. So not just pandemics, but things like AI-related threats. Um, and she said that since the pandemic, suddenly one big challenge about her job has got a lot easier. And that challenge is to convince policymakers and other audiences, I guess, that this stuff that scientists worry about is worth taking seriously. I think from where I'm sitting, the jury is still out on how long that effect will last, whether there'll be like a honeymoon period when these big issues are high on the agenda and then they'll gradually slide down again as normal life resumes. I don't know. One thing that we can see from this survey, though, is that that kind of immediate impact of taking stuff seriously has effects on both sides of the science policy divide as well. So it's not just that politicians might start taking these things seriously for now, but also that scientists have suddenly felt the impulse and the, the kind of empowerment to roll their sleeves up and say, OK, my time has come. I can really help the world here. Let's go. So I want to know whether you think these collective... Um, how to put it, this this kind of collective renewal and refocusing of effort and, and resources and, and optimism on big issues is something that will last on the scientist side of the fence. I think that the first the first element to, to a question about that is is the fact that a very high percentage of the, of the people that responded in the survey uh, felt that they had a contribution to make in order to be able to um, help mitigate the effects of the, uh, of, uh, of the pandemic. So I think that at the point in time when this survey was taken, there was a sense that, that action is possible and that um, my role as an expert is one which, which can provide a contribution towards a solution. I think that 
I would kind of hesitate personally to extrapolate any further than that, simply because it was uh, a question that was asked rather early in the uh, the, the pandemic. Um, I think it would be extremely interesting to go to go back, um, uh, you know, two or three months from now, and um, ask a second series of questions, and uh, just just to see how these different attitudes uh, have evolved. You know, it is possible that this initial um, this initial impulse to say yes, to, I'm going to stand up. I'm going to I'm going to convert my lab. I'm going to uh, see how my specific field of study uh, can provide useful insights in this emergency. Maybe a year later, that that that, that will be frustration rather than um, uh, you know rather than feeling a strong call to action. I think it would be interesting to see whether that's the case. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, yes, I, it would indeed be very interesting. If you do decide to go back to your sample and do round two, um, I would love to hear about it. So it remains only to me to thank both of you very much indeed for your time and your insights. It's been really interesting. Um, Fred Fenter and Stefan Kuster, uh, many thanks. Okay, terrific. Thank you very much, Toby. Yep. The Science for Policy podcast is produced by Sapea. We're a consortium of Europe's academies and learning societies, and we're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism. We provide evidence and expertise to inform the work of the group of chief scientific advisors. Sapea is funded by the EU's Horizon 2020 programme for research and innovation, and you can find lots more information about us and our work at sapea.info. Finally, the rather lovely cello music that's playing right now is performed by Elisaveta Sushchenko, so I shall shut up and let you enjoy the last few bars. Bye for now.